This morning our passage that we consider is from Romans chapter 9. Uh, we began looking at this chapter, uh, part of the middle section of the book of Romans uh, last week. And as we look at the passage this week, next week, really for through now until the beginning of Advent, it's important that we remember that Romans 9 through 11 is Paul recognizing that the incredible uh, promise that he revealed from God in verse, chapters 1 through 8 uh, begs certain questions, particularly as he finished Romans 8, that last promise where he said, asked the rhetorical question, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ? And the answer is nothing. And he gives this long litany of things that plague us and challenge us. And then he reminds us that even though these things exist and they are real and we experience them, they cannot separate us from the love of Christ. And he recognizes that thoughtful people would have some questions. And so Romans 9 through 11 is Paul's attempt to ask questions. But what we see particularly in Romans 9 is this, is his shot at answering the question then begs more questions, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning as we look at verses 14 through 24. Now, for the sake of context, I'll begin our reading in Romans 9, verse 10, and I'll read through Romans 9, 24. So if you'll open your Bibles there, let's consider the Word of God together. Romans 9, verse 10. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? But who are you, O oh man, to, cons- to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured much with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The word of our God. Let's pray. 
Our holy God, we, we come with thanksgiving for a day you have made that we not only rest from our labors, but we are reminded and enabled to yet again rest in your grace. Uh, the grace that forgives our sins, the grace that renews our strength, uh, the grace uh, that enables us to live day and day out, the grace that enables us to realize we can and must trust you. We pray also, Lord, that you would be at work within us, that as we worship you, giving you the praise that you are worthy to receive, we do so through our prayers and through our songs. But may we also praise you as we give you our our minds and our hearts, as we consider this word, and, and this word in particular, which can be difficult. May we give you our minds that you may instruct us, that we may learn to see things as you have revealed them, and even rejoice in the way things you have made. Lord, bless us in this time with understanding. May we bless you with rejoicing. We pray to the glory of your name in Christ Jesus. Amen. Down at the bottom of the hill, across a two-lane highway from the entrance to our old neighborhood in Upper East Tennessee, there in the yard near the front porch of a house was a yard sign. The yard sign had a simple message, two words, elect Jesus. Now, my first thought when I saw that was, I didn't know he was running for anything. Immediately followed up, I thought, last I checked, I thought God had said that he'd already established his king on his holy hill in Zion, that Jesus is that king, and so Jesus isn't running for anything. Jesus is already the king, and he already is reigning over his people. His kingdom is expanding. But every day I would pass that sign with similarly snarky thoughts. And yet, as I think of that sign, I'm reminded that my, my issues of snarkiness and theological snootiness aside, the sign is a, is, is a reflection of the many misunderstandings there are related to the, the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election, this whole idea that God chooses who will be the people that he will save. And that he will save people just because he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, as we read in the text that we have before us this morning, that God chooses a people simply out of his own will. This whole notion seems to grate against the sensibilities of many, many people, and we would probably ignore it except for passages like Romans 9 hit us square in the face. I mean, Romans 9 verses 10 through 13 where we see Jacob and Esau, and the whole point is, not, is to, to hit us in the face, to, to show us that God is God, and God is in control, and he is sovereign over all things, and that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so Paul writes to the Roman readers and then, for God's purposes, to Christians throughout the world for every generation that is to follow, and he talks about God choosing one child over another, twins born. 
uh, at, uh, you know, within minutes of one another, and that one he has chosen, and the other he has rejected. One who is the younger, defying almost all normal cultural protocol, will be the one who will be received and receive the promises and the blessings, and, and, uh, and the one who is the older, though having not done anything wrong, he will be rejected. This grates on us in many, many levels. Because not only is it the idea that God is going to choose, but then God chooses for reasons that we can't possibly understand, nor does he choose to reveal to us. It's not just election, but it's unconditional election that he's revealing to us in this passage and elsewhere in the Scripture. And our natural instinctive response to something like this is, that's not fair. What's amazing about the passage that we're looking at today is that the Apostle Paul anticipates that kind of response. Now, maybe it's not so amazing. Paul was not isolated. He didn't write this uh, letter to the Romans in a vacuum. He had engaged both philosophers and theologians and normal people as he was teaching what the Scriptures taught from beginning to end. And no doubt he's already encountered some of these kinds of objections, and that that's not fair would have been something that he probably had heard any time he was to bridge this subject. And so he's writing this letter now to the church in Rome, explaining the the message of salvation that is needed not only for them but for the whole world, and he now deals with this subject. He anticipates the question, and he responds. But before we dig in, what I think it's important for you to make note of as we look at these verses is that to answer the objection, and and in this passage we see that that's not fair expressed in, in, in really two distinct but related questions. Paul answers, but he doesn't answer in the way that we expect that he should. He doesn't answer in the way that we wish that he would. He answers in a way that he believes and knows is going to give the readers the best understanding of what God is doing and how God works. It might be tempting when we think about the questions that Paul raises here, and there's there's two questions which will form the the, kind of the, the points that we'll be looking at this morning. that he seems almost like a politician at a debate or at a town hall who is asked a question and then he gives an answer, but you kind of scratch your head and wonder, what does that have to do with the question that was just asked? In some cases, when a politician is doing that, it's because he's trying to dodge a question that he doesn't have an answer for. But it's also important to understand that sometimes, whether it's in politics or Paul or somewhere else in life, to answer a question that doesn't seem to be directly in response is necessary in order to give the best understanding. Sometimes it's necessary to kind of reject the premise that is suggested by the question in order to dig deeper, to get behind, and to give a a bigger picture that reshapes the way people are thinking so that they can truly have understanding. 
And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does in these verses. And so as we look at the passage, we see the first question, the first objection that, that Paul deals with, the first statement of, that's not fair. And we see it in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, this whole idea that God's saving grace is based upon his unconditional election, that he chooses one, but he doesn't choose another, and he does so not on the basis of what one does or has not done. He chooses simply on the basis of his own will. And so it's a normal, it's an expected, it's a reasonable question. Does that mean that God is unjust because he's giving favor to one and he's not giving it to somebody else and neither had earned it? And if neither had earned it, then neither had forfeited it. And yet this is the clear declaration of, of, of the way God works that, that Paul is making here. And one of the things that's important as we look at Paul's response is to look at the connection between some words here, three in particular, the word just and right or righteous and, and fair. In the Greek language, they're all part of the, the same family of words, and, and we tend to connect them as well. We might be able to think through and recognize that there might there, there's some subtle differences, but we use them, if not interchangeably, certainly interconnectedly. Because when we, we think about something and of being just, in order to be just, it has to be right. There's no such thing as something that is just, but it's the wrong thing in, in the first place. And when we think of something to be right, we also think that it must be fair and, or impartial. And, and those words are, are used inter, interconnectedly. And Paul is using that connection to give answer to the question or to the objection here. And Paul's answer here is, here's why God is not unrighteous in election. And then he goes on to give his explanation, but it's not the way that we think he would. It's not the way that we would expect that he would. Paul is addressing an assumption that is behind the question that leads us to wonder whether God is fair. And that assumption is that for God to be fair, that God should deal with people purely in accord with what they have done and what they have not done. But Paul says, no. For God to be righteous, which is necessary for him to be just, and for him to be just is necessary for him to be fair, for God to be righteous requires that he act in ways that uphold the glory of his name. In other words, God's righteousness does not primarily or fundamentally rest on how he treats us, but how he treats himself. Now, that doesn't seem to answer the question. The question is, is God unjust? And and Paul says, here's the righteousness of God. God is righteous, and he does what he does to promote the glory of his own name because he has to be faithful to himself. He has to be true to himself before he can be just, before we can receive any benefit from him. 
And then it's with that understanding that Paul then addresses the question more directly. We see his answer in verse 16. In verse 16, he says this, so then, which means he's connecting and he's about to give an answer. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, salvation, our being the beneficiaries of the promises that God made to Abraham in the covenant to become a a child of promise, the the language that he uses early in in chapter uh, 9, depends not on our efforts, our energies, our attitudes, our, um, our desires, our intentions. It rests 100% on God who has mercy. And then he goes on and he, and he explains a little bit further in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so he's digging back to the Exodus, which is really essential to understand, in order for us to understand the, the whole redemptive purpose and the redemptive ways of God. But he's speaking of the time that God, through Moses, confronted Pharaoh, while Pharaoh was holding God's people in bondage, just as sin holds people that are created in the image of God in bondage. And God, speaking to Pharaoh, said, the only reason I even made you is that in you I'm going to display my glory. But in this case, the glory was going to be as God demonstrates his power and as God demonstrates his wrath that he pours it out on the Pharaoh and therefore on the Pharaoh's people so that God's people will be set free. God had chosen him, but he had chosen him to glorify himself not through redemption, but through the demonstration of his own power. God is being faithful to himself, that being faithful to himself, he can be faithful to those, that he can be gracious to those that he chooses. This is all in accord with the purposes of God. And then in verse 18, we see how this applies. So then, he who has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. In other words, it's God's right, and God is being perfectly consistent with his purpose, with his holiness, with his righteousness, with his glory, to do this. To choose to have mercy on some, and choose not to have mercy on others. But Paul recognizes that answer isn't very satisfactory for uh, people. In fact, he, he recognizes that for whatever reason that there are many who want to question God's right to be God. But God is God, which means God is sovereign, and he has the right to do as he wills without owing explanation to anybody. And so Paul anticipates the second objection, the second question that we see that is found in our text in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? In other words, if Paul's answer to the first question of our thinking that the doctrine of unconditional election is somehow unfair, 
So even if we were to say, okay, I'll, I'll accept that for right now, then how is it that God finds fault? How is it that he can judge anyone if he only exercises his will in choosing some and not the others? If somebody has no ability, how is it that God is able to find fault and therefore to judge some even as he saves others, especially when he doesn't seem to use a measuring stick that we can understand and can appreciate. It has nothing to do with what one person does and another person doesn't do. It has only everything to do with what God has decided. And yet again, Paul doesn't answer directly the way that we would expect him to. Instead, he uses an illustration, borrowing it from Jeremiah 18 to drive his point home. It is an illustration of, a, of the potter and the, the clay. And Paul, as he gives his response in verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that which is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump the vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. And what he's doing there is he's giving, using a, a twofold argument. He's already established that God being God, therefore, is sovereign, because if God is not sovereign, if God doesn't have the right to do as he wills without giving obligate, uh, answer to anybody else, well, that means God works for somebody, that God is not ultimate, God is not the greatest, God is not the most glorious, in which case he can't be God. We need to look past whoever it is that we're calling God to who does he answer to? I don't want to talk to the second person in charge. I want to talk to the person in charge. And if God doesn't have that right, then God, that we, the person that we call God can't possibly be God. And, and he's saying God is like the potter, like God revealed himself in Jeremiah using this illustration and saying, I am the potter, you are the clay. But he's also borrowing that illustration because in the illustration of a potter and clay, this is human sovereignty. In other words, he's saying that there's a part of this answer that we think is unfair, but every single day, every one of us, and particularly as expressed in in this illustration, somebody who is an artist, somebody who is a potter, they demonstrate a measure of sovereignty within their own sphere of creation, and nobody asks any question. So you go down to one of the art studios or, or, or a, a, a pottery um, a community, and you ask one of the potters, well, I, I like that glazed coffee cup you made, but did you ask the clay in advance whether it wanted to be a coffee cup or whether it wanted to be a plate? I mean, that's absolutely ludicrous. Nobody would think to do that. Well, maybe I should rephrase that. Nobody would think to do that who then doesn't get locked up at Eastern State for a time. It just, it, it, it is nonsensical. We understand that the potter can take the clay and he can take it and mold it in any way that he sees fit. He can divide it if he chooses to. He can decide to make a glorious piece of art worthy of being hung in a museum or or displayed in a museum with half of that clay. And he can make a chamber pot to be actually used in the chamber with the other clay. Same lump, but half of it is used 
to display beauty, and the other half of it is just, we'll just say, dumped on uh, and discarded. And nobody ever thinks, is that unfair? Nobody would think that is unfair because everyone understands that the potter has that right. Now, some might say, well, what we're talking about, an inanimate object of clay and then what is made out of clay, and we are living, breathing things. Well, the same logic could be used in other spheres. Those of you who are gardeners, you prune what you decide needs to be pruned. You take a bush and you replant it or you discard it based on your discretion. You cut, you shape, you do as you see fit that brings you pleasure, that demonstrates so that you can present something that brings pleasure and, and is an expression of, uh, of, of your heart for people to enjoy so they enjoy the garden that you've planted. Do you ask the plant? How do you feel about being repotted? How do you feel about being discarded? How do you feel about being pruned? I mean, plants are living things. Use it another way. Think of the springtime, or maybe this time of year when the fall is coming into the air and you're baking and you have a window open and the fly comes in and is hovering around whatever it is that you've just baked. More annoying, it's hovering around your face and you're, you know, you have the right to shoo that thing out the window. You have the right to take the fly swatter and make sure that it doesn't annoy another person ever again. Living things, and yet nobody ever questions these things because it is understood that man who was created after the image of God, the apex of God's creation, is greater than all of these other. It was laid out in the time of the garden that man who was the apex of creation is to have authority over all of the earth and is to cultivate that, but that the earth is under the authority, under the dominion of humanity. And therefore, humanity has the right to do as they believe best. And it's never, never questioned. And while that may still be somewhat unsatisfactory, because, you know, we're still dealing with plants and we're dealing with flies, so if you don't swat it, it's going to be dead in a few hours anyway. And we're people made after the image of God. But there's a very real sense that though we are made after the image of God and are the highest expression of God's creation, we are still part of creation. And so though we reflect the nature of God and God has chosen us and said, this is good, and he wants to have fellowship with us now and for eternity, we are still his creation. And so in that sense, we are closer to the plant, to the fly, to the clay, than we are to being divine, to being deity. Because we can try, we can evolve, we can do all sorts of things, but we never become gods and never will. We will be God's creation that he enjoys, that he connects with, that he relates to, that he became in the person of Jesus. And yet, we are still his creation. And as his creation, what Paul is saying, digging back into 
passages from the Old Testament saying, doesn't God, who created everything, have the right to do whatever he wants with that which he has created? And the answer is, of course he has the right to do whatever it is that he believes is best, whatever it is that he wants. And then with that understanding, Paul moves on and and answers the question a little more directly, but he answers with hypotheticals. As we look at this passage, Paul says this in verse 22, what if God desiring to show wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And so what Paul is doing is he's kind of, as the old country folks would say, he's ifing here. You know, what if God wanted to make his wrath known to show how he feels about sin and the rebellion against him? What if he wants to make his wrath known And he wants to make his power known so that everyone on earth knows that it's not that God's not able to do anything about the rebellion against him and the sin that is causing so much pain in this world. God is able to do whatever he chooses to do. But he wants his power known so that people will recognize that there is is answer going to be given. But what if he simply has been patient for a time to make the riches of his glory and his grace known to those who will be the beneficiaries of his mercy? In other words, God is making known very subtly, but at times very powerfully, his his power and what he thinks about sin and he punishes it, but he doesn't pour out the fullness of his wrath because he's being patient because among those who are rebelling are those whom he is also calling, whom he has chosen. So instead of demonstrating his fullness of his righteous anger against that sin, he's being patient, but he does at times show examples of his power and what he thinks of sin by bringing judgment and therefore giving warning to all of the earth. That's what Paul is digging and saying, that's what he told Pharaoh. I raised you up for this purpose because I'm going to be glorified as you who are the most powerful man on the earth. I'm going to show you're nothing. You can't even protect your own household, much less the whole nation. And then the plagues came and eroded the power and the popularity of the Pharaoh. He was demonstrating his power. He was revealing his glory and demonstrating what he thinks of those who oppose him. But he doesn't wipe Egyptians out. He doesn't wipe everybody out because he's being merciful. Because among the Egyptians, just as there are among every tribe and tongue and nation, there are those that God is calling, those upon whom he's going to have mercy. And we are able to now see how God works What's his attitude about sin? 
And what is it that he is going to do when he decides to unleash the fullness of his wrath? We should be awed. We should be warned. And that's what Paul is saying here. What if? And then he goes on, and what if God's plan from the beginning was to bless and to save not only Jews, because that's what this whole thing came up with, the whole issue was. What if, he made promises to Israel, and now these promises are going to Gentiles and to the Jews who believe. But what if from the beginning God's plan to save was not only the Jews, but for Gentiles from every nation, type, and trunk, and group? And that is the reality. Remember, as we said when we began studying this, Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, not just for the Romans' benefit. He's not writing a theological book to hopefully make the New York Times bestseller. He's saying, I'm going to Spain. My desire is to go to Spain because the people in Spain need to hear the message of the gospel, and here's the gospel that we need to present to them, that they need, that you need, that we, we all need. Because it's an expression of God was calling a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's a reminder to the Jews and perhaps news to the Gentiles that from the very beginning when God called Abram, in whom the promises are rooted, he said, I'm calling you and I'm going to make you a great nation and through you I will bless all the nations of the earth. It has always been from the very beginning God's plan to save people from everywhere throughout the world. Now, during that time, the Jews of the day, just like the church of today, get so comfortable living in God's promises, we begin to pat ourselves on the back and to think something is special about us, or at least inherently with us. The only thing special about us is God has chosen to love us. And God here is saying, God only knows why. But Paul answers the question, is God unjust? He's saying God is not unjust. God has the right to do whatever God wants because God is God. And then through his hypothetical questions, what if? What if this is the reason that God is giving demonstration of his glory so that those who will be the beneficiaries of his grace will recognize what a tremendous thing it is to be the people of God? And so Paul answers the objections. What is it that we're to do with all this? I mean, that's like lots of head knowledge. For some, it will prove to be helpful. For others, maybe it's still lacking. In part, it may be lacking because of this is, there's so much here and your, my ability to expose it all is certainly quite limited. It might be left unsatisfactory because Paul doesn't really endeavor to make sure that all of my questions and all of your questions are answered. He's reorienting us, reshaping the questions so that we can have a foundational knowledge, and from that knowledge, we can have true understanding, understanding based on what is real, based on what God is doing, not based on our construction of premises. But there are some things that we can do. The first thing I think it's important that we do is we let God be God. And for some, that may require a total reorientation of the way that we think. 
So we all operate with a, under a, a default setting of self-centeredness when we think. We, we think, okay, what do I think about this? How do I feel about this? And what's in this for me? And questions that these, behind questions such as questions about unconditional election, is, is God looking out for my best interests in this? That's the default setting. It's not the original factory setting. That was Adam and Eve, and they had the let God be God at first. But ever since the fall, we all operate in a self-centered thinking. We begin with ourselves, and we think elsewhere, and then sometimes God gets our approval. And so we'll sign up. We'll claim him. Not unlike we decide to do with a presidential candidate or a gubernatorial candidate or candidate for city council. We listen, and if they give us the answers that make sense to us, if it's good for us, then we'll elect them. And that's the way it ought to be. But God's not running for anything. And so it may require a total reorientation of the way that we think. And to gain understanding of the way things really are and the way things are supposed to work, we must begin by thinking God's thoughts, to train ourselves to think and to view the world the way that God has revealed things according to his revelation. And we let God be God and realize, if I think this and God says this, one of us is right and one of us is wrong, who could it possibly be? I mean, we laugh, but that's my daily conversation. Let God be God. And God has said some things that seem challenging and seem difficult, that don't seem to, it's not the way I would do it. One of us is right, and one, uh, and one, of, them is, one of us is me. Second of that is, I would say this, don't overthink things. Here's what I mean by that. Nowhere in Scripture are we instructed or encouraged to try to figure out if we are elect and then figure out if we're on that list and then decide whether or not we'll, we'll follow the Lord. Scripture's quite clear. If you believe and trust in Christ Jesus, you are the elect. Because everyone who believes, anyone who is a Christian is saved by God's grace and is saved through faith in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. When we move from the the what ifs that God wanted to demonstrate his wrath and what he thinks about sin, and he's chosen some from all history that he's going to demonstrate that to so that those whom he calls know that value, well, God did at a time in history pour out the fullness of his wrath. But he did so on his own son whom he sent to become like us, to live the life we were supposed to live, and then he died the death that we all deserve so that we would see God hates sin, that God is capable, and this is what he will do to those who oppose and reject him. But associated with that from the very beginning, the fulfillment of the promises, but for those who will trust in his provision, that he has died that death and then he rose to give life. For those who believe in that, then they are 
the beneficiaries. And we're told that if you believe, if you have faith in what Jesus has done and what God has done in Jesus, it's only because God has given you that as a gift. He's given you faith as a gift. So if we look at salvation in this way, that it's, we all believe by God's grace through faith in the gospel. If the gospel was a smoothie, faith would be a straw. It's the means by which you drink in everything of substance. And the only ones who have a straw are the ones that God has provided a straw to. And if you have a straw and you believe that Jesus has died in your place, if you are believing that, then you don't need to go figure it out. The scripture says you, the only reason you would believe is if God has chosen you. He's chosen you for mercy. He's chosen you to be the recipients of his love. There's an old illustration, most of you have probably heard it at some point, but it's vitally important that you, know, you keep it in mind, particularly those who have not heard it. But think of our salvation as a, a doorway. And on the outside, for those who are coming in, it says, welcome all to whosoever shall believe. But when you're on the inside and you're looking back to the path which you came, you see on the inside of the doorpost on the top, those who responded are the elect. It's not something for us to figure out and then try to fit into. It's a promise of, it's an expression of the mechanics of the way God works. And the only reason for us to understand how God works is to stand in awe that we are beneficiaries of it because we certainly are not deserving of it. Related to that question is for those who are here that may not believe, those who are struggling with belief, my, my question would be this, and it's not, it's not snarky at all, but why don't you believe? Maybe a better question is, what don't you believe? Because the fact of the matter is there's so much stuff and gunk out there sometimes attached to the name Christianity that it kind of clogs up the straw. And so I'd love to talk with you about what is it you don't believe? What is it you have problems with? There's a good chance I don't believe that stuff either. And maybe if we can work through that kind of stuff, we'll get rid of the blockages and you realize, you know what? I really do believe. The ultimate question, though, is related to this in terms of don't overthinking about it, is, is, is unconditional election biblical? Or is it just Paul? And to answer that question, I would say, think about God through history. Think about the passages and the people that Paul refers to. Think about why God chose Abram in the first place. Why he chose to make Israel, and he, what he told Israel, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest of the nations. I chose you because I decided to love you, and I'm going to make you great. And throughout all of the Old Testament, why does God choose to do what he does? And it's, is, it, is it truly unconditional, or is it something that appears that some of his people have merited? And I think that you will find very clearly from the beginning.
God demonstrates his mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy, not because of anything inherent to us, but because our God is merciful. And so let God be God. Don't try to overthink it. Just realize what the Scripture, consider what the Scripture reveals. And then finally, recognize what makes God's sovereignty over and God's sovereign election good news. And I think first is, it's good news because it allows us to see God as God. That God is in control. And knowing God is in control is ultimately comforting, even if it leaves us with many questions about why things are the way they are in this world, why some suffer and others seem to have such charmed lives. Those are understandable, and those are not bad questions. But to recognize that the idea that God is in control, the reality that God is in control is a point of comfort, you need to think opposite. Well, what if God is not in control? Which is a default answer at times for people trying to comfort people that are going through suffering. Well, God didn't mean for this to happen. John Piper tells a time that at his mother's funeral, people kept coming up to him and telling him, you know, God didn't want this to happen. After she was killed in a tragic accident, I believe it was some lumber actually went through her windshield. I'll just tell you, if you see John Piper, don't tell him anything like that. He's not the one that you need to be telling that to. But he finally had enough, and he said, look, I get no comfort in the idea that my God is not more powerful than a two-by-four. I don't know what God is doing. I don't know why God did it, but I do know this. God is in control of all things. Because what happens ultimately is if you get this temporary comfort by thinking, God, you know, we protect God. That, you know, he didn't want this to happen. Ultimately, you start thinking about the world and everything that's happening and then say, well, but God didn't want this to happen and God didn't want this to happen and God didn't want this to happen. There's an awful lot of things that are happening that seem to be outside of God's control. Then what is it that God can control? And if God can't control these things, then what hope is there for any of us? I don't understand why God is doing what he does. I don't understand why you suffer the way you do. I don't understand when I suffer the way I do necessarily. But I know that the answer is not to say, well, then God can't do anything. God is working out his purposes to have mercy on whom we love mercy. And that ultimately is our comfort. But more than that, we are able to see God as God when we recognize this. It is this idea that God is sovereign over all things, including his salvation, that God operates with unconditional election, that cultivates a healthy humility within those who are his people. I, I find it incredibly perplexing in our reform circles, people who embrace this doctrine of unconditional election with pride. Oh yeah, Camper, I know that I'm more nothing than you know. I know God chose me for, well, I have no idea why God chose me, and I know that, so what is there for us to be proud about? 
what this doctrine teaches us is that it's not because of us. It's not that we're better than anyone else. It's God loved you. And if God loved you, there's no reason to be proud because it was anything you did, but there's no reason to fear because there's no reason, there's no way that anyone will take you from God who chose you. If he chose you, not because it's like junior high dodgeball. I'm going to take the best athletes and you know, leave everybody else to their own. But just because he chose, then there's nothing you're going to do that's going to get you booted. He loves whom he loves. He promises to preserve, to bless those whom he loves. There, there are many practical benefits. I don't have time to, to look at them, but consider why this doctrine that makes us so uncomfortable is good news. And I don't want you to embrace these things because I say it. These is, this is the case. We say it a lot. Don't buy anything we say, only buy what the Scripture teaches. And this is complex, and this is difficult, in part because it doesn't resonate with the way that we are inclined to think. But there is an answer. And the ultimate answer is, according to Paul, and according to Moses, the answer is, because God is God. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you this day for this word. Uncomfortable as it may be, unnerving as it may be, may we also find the beauty of your grace that you have loved us, not because of us, but because you chose to. Let us rest in this and rejoice in you. We pray to the glory of your name in Christ. Amen.